Thank you, Hannah, for leading us in worship. It's good to be back. It feels like it's been a while since I preached. I was getting used to that angle there. But um, last week we took a break for Easter, but tonight we return once more to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the final chapter. We are on the home stretch. The end is in sight but there's still a sermon or two left in this book. Just the first four verses of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 to 4. It reads as follows. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. This thus far in God's word. Let us pray. Lord, this is your word, and yet it is so much more than words. This isn't just text on a page. This is your living word. Make it alive unto us tonight. Convict, encourage, sanctify. Change us by your word, I pray. Conform us, even tonight, unto the image of your Son. I pray this in your name. Amen. Money, money, money. <laughs> the body of this letter, the many issues that Paul wanted to address in writing this letter, the sin, the Corinthian chaos that has captured our attention for almost a year now, all that has been wrapped up in the previous chapters. This last chapter, it's no longer addressing chaos in the church, but rather matters of practicality. Paul talks about his plans to visit. Paul talks about Timothy's intention to visit and how they should receive him. He talks about Apollos' potential visit. He talks about a specific family in the church that was a blessing to him. And of course, he gives his final greetings. But our focus tonight, just the first four verses, Paul gives practical instruction relating to money, and more specifically, the collection of money. It's practical, very practical. He's not fixing some issue. He's not rebuking them for some sin. He's not giving them some deep theological treatise. He's just giving them instructions for collection. As practical as this passage is, And as mundane as it might seem about the life of the early church, if we look for it, if we look for it, how they applied the gospel in these matters of practicality when it comes to money, how they applied it then, it can inform us today, and it can show us how to apply the gospel today in the matters of money. So just two points tonight, two points. First, we unpack the context Secondly, 
we will draw principle and application out of the context. What is the context? Verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints. We hear that word collection and we think tithes and offerings and we hold on to our wallets. <laughs> and by the end we might apply, we might apply some of the principles to tithes and offerings, but that is not the actual immediate context of this verse. This collection was for a very specific purpose. It was a special collection for the saints. It is verse 3 that informs us exactly which saints it is those in Jerusalem. There is place for giving within the context of the local church, whether that's giving for the livelihood of the pastor or giving for the sake of the needy in the church. There is place for that within the local church. That's not what it's talking about. Above and beyond financing the local church, this specific collection was pointed outwards. Paul gives an appeal, please lay aside some money to be taken as a gift to Jerusalem. This is akin to our practices at Easter services and Christmas services. We usually take up a special offering that's laid aside for a certain purpose. Sometimes it may be missionaries, sometimes it may be Bethesda, that's an orphanage connected to the church. And maybe a church in need. Last Christmas, it was pastors in need. This last Easter, it was for the building projects at the Hill and at Arcadia. A special offering, a special gift set aside for a specific purpose. The rest of verse 1, As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Paul gives these special instructions not just to the church in Corinth, but also to the various churches of Galatia. The Corinthian church is not alone in organizing the special gift. And if we go beyond this passage, there are many references to other gifts. Acts 11, Acts 24, Romans 15, Philippians 4, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We have various examples in Scripture of local churches putting an effort into gathering some sort of material gift, not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of others. Others, perhaps strangers to them, perhaps people that they have never met, but not strangers to the gospel. This gift was not blindly thrown out in the darkness, hoping that someone maybe benefit from it and get converted. No, it was to believers, the saints in Jerusalem, from believers, from the believers, the church in Corinth and the churches in Galatia. In the early years of Christianity, the church in Jerusalem would receive many such a gift. Why did Jerusalem need help? Why was this special offering taken up for them? Why was this necessary? There's a variety of reasons. At the end of Acts 11, we find the church in Antioch chose to send some relief to the church in Jerusalem. That was prompted by a prophecy concerning a famine. It could have been that as the seasons changed, as the seasons changed, that drought and hard times came upon the land and Jerusalem and Judea, and there was a particular shortage of food. That's a very practical need, simply keeping food on the table. A second possibility is persecution. 
and the wider Roman Empire, Christians would come to be persecuted in various forms. But in the early days of Christianity, there was a particular persecution that Jewish believers suffered from their fellow Jew. You can read about this in Acts. Early Jewish Jewish Christians were beaten. They were imprisoned. They were stoned. Of course, we know Stephen Stephen was stoned to death. This isn't some crazy Roman emperor deciding he hates Christians. This is their own flesh and blood. They are being rejected by their own people. That could have contributed to the material need of the church in Jerusalem. A third possibility is that the church in Jerusalem was simply poor. Remember, at this point in history, the entire nation was under Roman oppression. They lived under Roman rules, by Roman rules, and they had to pay Roman taxes. They were the mother church. The gospel was to go out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria unto the ends of the earth. It was in Jerusalem that the Spirit would be poured out at Pentecost and 3,000 would be added to their number. Of course, those 3,000 would disperse, but still we have this spiritually rich mother church in Jerusalem. This is where it all started. Spiritually rich, but materially poor and depressed. All three of these factors could have contributed to churches elsewhere taking it upon themselves to send a gift to Jerusalem. Now there's a wonderful practicality to verse 2. On the first day of every week, this is seen as an early reference to the switch from the Sabbath. That was the usual Jewish custom of meeting on Saturday. Switching from that to Sunday for a particular gathering of the saints. Why the switch? Because as we celebrated last week, It was on the third day that Jesus rose from the dead. Friday, he was crucified. Sunday morning, they found the grave empty, our Savior risen. You can cross-reference that with Acts 20, verse 7. It uses the same phrase. They met on the first day of the week to break bread and to fellowship. And of course, that was the occasion that Paul preached for so long that someone fell out of a window. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Each of you. Now clearly, clearly the churches in Corinth, or the church in Corinth and the churches in Galatia, clearly they were in a better position than the church in Jerusalem. There's a reason why these churches are giving a gift to that church. But churches, even New Testament churches, were made up of diverse groups of people. And yet Paul's appeal, his instruction, you'll notice, is not for the rich in the church to organize this gift. It is that each of them, each of the Corinthians, each, every single member of this church was to take part in this venture. A body made up of many members, he told us earlier in in the book, diverse members, rich members, poor members, but each is part of the body and each contributes. Each of you set it aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Again, practical. This wasn't rocket science. If you have bought a house or a car or even these days a cell phone, you'll understand that a large sum of money is easier to deal with bit by bit. 
If you had to fork it out in one go, it would either be completely impossible or you end up going hungry for the rest of the month. This is just Paul being considerate and thinking practically. He does not want to burden them. He's not asking for an arm or a leg. He simply asks that they give according to how they prosper. By implication, this is not talking about the luck of the draw. This is talking about as man is blessed and as man is prospered by God. As God provided for them, so too they would contribute to the work of God. To those who have little, Paul asks that they give according to how God has prospered them with little. To those who have much, God asks that they give according to how God has prospered them with much. Paul knows that if he came out of the blue and asked for this gift, not only would it inconvenience the church, but the size of the gift would also suffer. What's the best of both worlds? Collected in advance, little by little, as you prosper, add to the collection so that it may be ready when I come. Verse 3, and when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. We have many examples in Scripture of money matters done wrong. It was money that incentivized, incentivized Judas to betray Jesus. It was money that seduced Ananias and Sapphira to greed and caused them to sin and lie, and this brought about their demise. And it was money that Jesus warned about, saying, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so Paul puts a specific effort into avoiding such things. So he suggests the church takes measures to ensure that the gift reaches its destination. This also safeguards his own reputation. There should not be even a hint of something going under the table, pocket money, lunch money, any money. Paul wants none of it. This echoes what he said early in chapter 9. There Paul surrendered his rights, though he had every right to reap material benefit He chose not to for the sake of the gospel because he knew that some hotshot would go around saying, aha, he did it for the money. (laughs) I don't want your money. I don't want to be near your money, Paul says. And even in this practical instruction, he makes it clear to them, this has nothing to do with me. So he instructs the local church to get together and have a church meeting And they must come up with recommendations of people whom they trust who can make sure this money gets to the intended destination. Paul isn't some bishop calling the shots from the distance. The local church is responsible for the local church. They appoint the leaders. They make the decisions. They will send the money. And when Paul gets there, it is those appointed by them who will take the money to Jerusalem. That is the context. 2,000 years ago, today. How is this little piece of New Testament church business useful to us? Just four principles and applications. Firstly, regular faithfulness from all the believers 
sustains the church as I take a sip of water. Does God provide in miraculous ways? Of course he does. Of course he does. Those are exceptions, not the norm. By and large, God's design is not that Elon Musk walks through that door and funds all our building projects. It sounds wonderful, but no. No, God designed the church to be sustained by those in it. Those who have been saved and all of those in the church who have been saved. And as I was preparing this, the image on my mind was that of us passing around the offering bag. As we reach into our pockets, our wallets, there's a personal nature to it. And yet as you reach out for the offering bag, you might find that you bump hands with the person sitting next to you also reaching out for the offering bag. It is individual, personal, but yet there's an intimacy to it as we partake in this together. Each one of us, each one of us, from the child whose mother handed them 10 cents as a lesson on giving, to the teenager who gives a small portion of their pocket money, to the student who's struggling to make ends meet, to the young and working, to the young and married, to the parents saving up for their child's university, to the old pensioner, Each of us gives. And when all is said and done, as we partake in this ministry, I echo the words of Paul, there is no Jew nor Greek. There is no rich or poor. There is no slave or free. There is just the people of God saved by the blood of the Lamb giving. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 9, not under compulsion, but cheerfully from a willing heart. Not to buy favor with God, but as a response to his unmerited favor that he has already given us. This is how pastors get paid. This is how interns raise their support. This is what keeps the lights on. This is how the roof will be fixed and the building refurbished and the hill extended. This is how we care for the widows and the orphans and the poor in our midst. This is how we send gifts to believers who we hear are struggling. This is how we send out missionaries unto Pretoria, unto Africa, unto Asia, unto South America, and unto Asia again. Each of us, each of us, with regular faithfulness as members of the local church, it is by God's design that we give unto the work of God in the local body and abroad. That's God's design. Now, there are T's and C's to that, and we'll get to that in a second. But that is God's design, that the faithful giving of all the believers in the local church, this is what contributes to the extension of the kingdom of God. So firstly, firstly, faithfulness from all the believers is God's design, and it is God's means of not just sustaining the church, but also growing it. Secondly, we are faithful in giving as God prospers us. There's a wonderful, there's a wonderful simplicity to this. God provides, we give as he provides. It's simple. Do you believe it? Do you believe the job you have was provided by God? 
Do you believe in the money in your bank account, in your bank account is there by God's provision? If you believe those things, then giving back to God, giving back unto God what is already his, is easy. It makes sense. It's logical. Or is your life just the sum of all your hard work? I'm building up my capital. I'm collecting my assets. I'm enjoying my hard-earned money, and I can spend it on whatever I want to spend it on. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. If you truly believe that God provides for you, your attitude towards money changes. And the gospel changes our attitude towards giving. Who am I to withhold the little I have from him who gave everything to buy my salvation? Who am I to withhold a small earthly gift that will soon break and rust and be lost to history from him who gave an eternal gift that will never perish? And the closed fist of mine, 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 when it encounters the gospel, When it is transformed by the love of Christ, it becomes the open hand of God's, God's, God's. Our attitude towards giving is changed by the gospel. But our attitude towards money as a whole is also changed. How I use money, how I make money, these things matter. I cannot thieve and lie and bribe my way to the top and think that if I just give a little portion of it to the church, it somehow redeems the whole stench of sin. I cannot use a portion to fund my sinful addictions and think that somehow giving a portion to the church redeems the situation. No, we work hard, we work honestly, by the sweat of our brow, we work in God-glorifying ways, and as God provides, we respond in kind. As he prospers us, so too we give unto his kingdom. Thirdly, we give in wisdom. We give in wisdom. Is there something to be said for church membership? Yes. And if you are a member here at Central, you should have been through some sort of membership class. And in the membership class, you should have heard something along the lines of partner with us in gospel ministry. Now that means we pray together, we worship together, we go through the word together, and yes, when we give, as God provides for us, so too we give. And when we give, we give into the same basket. But here's what I'm getting at. When you give, you give not because you have a membership certificate collecting dust in your cupboard. It is not because all your friends come here. It is not because you have some sort of loyalty towards the guy standing behind the pulpit. None of that stuff. You give because in your heart of hearts, you have thought it through, you have measured us, you have prayed about it, and you believe God is at work amongst us. That is you exercising wisdom over your money. If if you are in a church and you do not see God's hand at work in that church, you should not be giving to it. If you are in a church and you suspect the pastor is extorting money 
or extorting the congregation to make himself rich, and you cannot draw a line between the pastor's lifestyle and God being glorified, you should not be giving to that church. And God forbid, if the day comes, we hope it doesn't come, we pray it doesn't come, but if the day comes that Central Baptist Church preaches a different gospel to the one found in the Bible, may it be that the money dries up. We try and exercise wisdom in the way we give. We seek God's hand in the way we give. In the way we handle money, a good word is stewardship. We ought to be good stewards of our giving. On an individual level, giving to the church, we exercise wisdom. But also from the church leadership, those elected by the members of the church, we exercise wisdom of the money within the church treasury. We are accountable for every single cent. If you are a member of Central Baptist Church, you should be getting the financial reports of the church. This has the budget for the year. This tells you what we have spent money on from the utility bills to salaries to the missionaries to all the different ministries. There are safeguards in place that protect that money from being used for things that are not God-glorifying. The wisdom of God governs our giving, and the wisdom of God governs how the church spends its money. Lastly, Christian faithfulness is not mechanical. Christian faithfulness in giving is not just some well-oiled machine. We give in wisdom, but we also give in faith. This is more than inflation. This is more than interest rates. This is more than some funny pyramid scheme. This is more than just good business principles. This is more than merely being honest about money and making an honest living and giving some to the church so it can offer employment to a bunch of pastors. This is more than a silly membership fee so you can use the venue for your wedding and your family can use it for your funeral one day. It's more than all of that. We give in wisdom, but also in faith, hoping, praying, seeking God that he would use us and our money for his glory. This is the greatest privilege on earth to be active partakers in the kingdom of God to be useful to God, to not be bystanders to the hand of God working and establishing his kingdom, that I would give my one rand as God has provided for me, and the person next to me gives his 100 rand as God provided for them, and then 101 rand serves the kingdom of God. This is not a burden, it is a privilege and a joy, and we do it in faith that God would take the little that we have and he would use it to encourage people. He would use it to change someone's life. Indeed, he would use it to save souls. This is a privilege and it is a joy. As I conclude, unbeliever, what does this mean to you? If you are an unbeliever in our midst, dare I say it, we do not want your money. We desire your salvation. We would see you repent of your sinful state. We would see you look to Jesus. He died for your sin. He is able and he is willing not only to forgive your sin, but to make you right with God. And he would take your dead and hopeless, meaningless existence and he would make it useful.
We do not want your money. We desire your salvation. There are churches out there who would gladly take your money and they might promise you some sort of blessing. But believe me, unless you put your faith in Christ and Christ alone, it does not matter what you do with your money. It will not save you. You can give to the church. You can give to the poor. You can throw it up in the air for the birds if you want. We are not saved by acts of charity or kindness other than the charity and kindness of God sending his son to die on the cross. That is how we are saved. Christ and Christ alone. Believer, what does this mean for you? He who died for you, he who loves you, he who saved you, he would use you. He would use all of you. He would use your time. He would use your career. He would use your marriage. He would use you. He would use even your money, given faithfully, given regularly, given generously, given cheerfully, given according to how he has provided for you, for every good gift comes from above. He would use you and your money for his glory. May it be, may it be that we as believers are found faithful even in this. May it be that we are faithful and we do it not under compulsion, not out of loyalty, not out of obligation, but from sincere hearts, genuinely seeking the glory of God, the hand of God at work amongst us. May it be. Let us pray. Lord, may it be that even in this matter of money, both as individuals and as a church, as a corporate body, may we be found faithful, Lord, unto the extension of your kingdom, unto your glory, I pray. Amen.